Hey guys, believe it or not, Superbad just turned 10 years old. For the anniversary, The Ringer talked to everyone involved, from Seth Rogen to Jonah Hill to Judd Apatow, to get all the details on the making of the seminal teen comedy. Head to TheRinger.com now, well, after you listen to Binge Mode, to read about casting McLovin, Michael Sarah pounding orange-flavored vodka, and the birth of the acronym DTF. And now, binge mode. What do you see? Adult content. Keep looking. I see adult content that people might be offended by. What do you see? I see binge mode. The binge mode. I see that if people are offended by adult content, they shouldn't listen to binge mode. But if they like the show Game of Thrones, they should listen to it. Do you believe me now, Plagain? Do you believe we're here for a reason? In winter, we must protect ourselves. Look after one another. Father. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. I miss him. And welcome to Binge Mode. Wow. Yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished committing some light incest on the high seas. Ah, it's wonderful on the on the ocean. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your maester, and my co-host. Jason Concepcion. No, it's too early for this. Oh my God, I'm already crying. <laughs> Jason? Yes, Mel. This is serious. I knew it. I, I thought it was. I wouldn't be here if it weren't, because it's the last binge mode Game of Thrones, bud. The last one of this 67 episode run. Yeah. If anyone listening to this is new to binge mode. Sure. It's got to be somebody. It's got to be someone proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. We have episode breakdowns of all 66 previous Game of Thrones installments. That's right. Waiting for you to listen to during your next bow ride. Turn it up loud. If you don't have something else going on, who's turn to that up. Yeah, so turn it up loud. You want to hear it over the over the, the ocean and the, and the box spring. <laughs> you don't want Tyrion to be able to hear your sex moans. No. <laughs> As always, light speculation and spoiler warning for those of you who may not be current. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books alike. Just from- like John. <laughs> Going deep from this episode and this season and everything that came before it. We have spent as much time talking about Game of Thrones as the Night King spent waiting for a way to bring the wall down. And we truly, truly, truly cannot wait for more pages or more episodes or a trailer or an interview or a picture or literally anything so that we can talk about it some more. But for now, you're right to be afraid because it's time to break down the season seven finale. The Dragon and the Wolf. Jason! Yes! I've seen everything. Well. Things you couldn't imagine? Well, tell me. This, doing this final binge mode with you, is the only thing I've ever seen that terrifies me. 
but we have to face it. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in this episode, the longest episode in Game of Thrones history. That's right. By taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. In King's Landing, where a lot of stuff happens for a long time in this episode. Danny's unsullied and her Dothraki array outside the city walls in a show of force. They're all just kind of there, huh? They're all there. They got there somehow. (laughs) You know, travel is, you know, fast these days. John and Tyrion, along with the wolf and the dragon's top advisors, sail into the capital in preparation for the meeting. Cersei tells the mountain, anything goes wrong, kill Danny first. Mm -hmm. Followed by Tyrion, then John. Then it's like a free-for-all, basically. (laughs) Danny arrives late. Power move on her part. And of course, she arrives on the back of Drogon. The summit commences. John makes his pitch. Danny offers a temporary truce to unify the realm in the face of the White Walker threat. The Hound fetches the white, underlining the gravity of what faces them. And upon learning that the dead can't swim, Urine is like, I'm out. I'm going back to the, my island because this is bullshit. Or does he? Mm. Cersei then makes a counteroffer. The crown will accept the truce as long as John remains neutral in the war between Cersei and Danny. John, however, admits. I've already declared for the queen. Deal's off, guys. Tyrion goes to talk to Cersei alone. He expresses grief for the deaths of Tommen and Marcella. Tyrion realizes that Cersei's pregnant because she ain't drinking and keeps touching her belly in really suspicious ways. <laughs> Danny tells John, I can't have children, but we can try. <laughs> <laughs> Cersei appears to agree to the truce, but actually, she and Euron have a plan to backstab Danny and John. Jamie objects. He and Cersei fall out. Finally. 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 He rides north. Speaking of the North, yeah, lot going on up at Winterfell. Sure is. Where Littlefinger, or should I say Peter? Peter, please. <laughs> Unambiguously tries to turn Sansa against Jon and Arya. It's but... a little game I like to play <laughs> when I don't know what to do. Is it a memorable game? It's a memorable game. <laughs> Man, I'm going to miss that voice. But guys, it does not work. Mad X, give us those bells for Peter Baelish. And his 15 accents. <laughs> give us one bell for every different accent <laughs> that Littlefinger had over the course of Game of Thrones. It's so that wonderful. should be something like 417 bells. Littlefinger, after all that, all that scheming, yeah. kind of went out like a punk. A big time punk on his knees. But. We got some beautiful Arya Sansa resolution really at great. the end. And that was something. It was. Sam. Yeah. Arrives at Winterfell <laughs> and has a totally normal, not at all weird chat with Bran. Sure. Bran tells Sam that John is Rhaegar and Lyanna's bastard son. This is what Bran thinks. Right. And then- he knows everything except <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. And then Sam just straight plagiarizes Gilly's thesis. Very tough. For research. They connect the dots. Bran taps into the tree net for some final crucial intel and realizes John, or should we say Aegon? Aegon the Sixth? Not yet, but soon. What a reveal. Amazing. Is in fact the legitimate heir to the Iron Throne. On Dragonstone. Danny's generals, including John, finalize their plans to move north. The Dothraki will ride up the King's Road, and John and Danny will sail on that boat to White Harbor. Much to Jorah's chagrin. Woo! He was like, but wait, but what if you what if you flew instead? What if you didn't no, go on the what sex if boat? I went on a boat with this guy? <laughs> uh, later, John forgives Theon, and Theon resolves to rescue Yara. Then, on a boat, 
Sex boat. The sex boat outside Dragonstone. <laughs> so much sex on the sex, sex boat. Sex happens on the sex boat. It goes like this. Who is it? It's your nephew. It's your nephew. Uh, yeah, John and Danny fucked, guys. It's pretty good. People have been waiting a really long time for a couple things. Long the time. truth of John's parentage yes. and for John and Danny to fuck. And those things happen and they were intercut with each other, which is super weird. Super weird. But was also awesome. I loved it. Eastwatch, the army of the dead marches on the wall. Viserion, with the Night King on his back, sprays blue fire against the wall. And the wall tumbles down. Give us those bells for Chekhov's wall. Finally. Mel? Yeah? This is not about living in harmony. No. It's just about living. Okay. The same thing is coming for all of us, a general you can't negotiate with. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it. By sticking it like Jon Snow with the pointy end, <laughs> the defining theme of this episode is unions. Love a union. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> a quick dragon pit primer, guys. When our heroes and villains gather at the dragon pit, Tyrion tries to begin the proceedings with a rousing assessment of the union they've gathered to attempt. Mm -hmm. We are a group of people, he says, who do not like one another. In an incredibly obvious opening statement, as this recent demonstration has shown, we have suffered at each other's hands. We have lost people we love at each other's hands. If all we wanted was more of the same, there would be no need for this gathering. We are entirely capable of waging war against each other without meeting face to face. John, as always, is there with the realist of talk. This isn't about living in harmony. It's just about living. The same thing is coming for all of us. A general you can't negotiate with. An army that doesn't leave corpses behind on the battlefield. Lord Tyrion tells me a million people live in this city. They're about to become a million more soldiers in the Army of the Dead. Danny, what are you doing tonight? Cersei and Danny bicker about the nature of the truce, the suspension of disbelief required to opt into a partnership with people you've been killing in battle, killing off battle, killing in just in other ways. Danny's, you have my word pledged us and hold much weight with Cersei, who rightfully identifies it as the word of a would be usurper. The hound kicks open the white in a box, and we get a little. Fire and dragon glass demonstration from John, and then some more John fearmongering. If we don't win this fight, then that is the fate of every person in the world. There's only one war that matters the Great War, and it is here. Danny, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> Danny bafflingly explains her conversion, one shade shy of, I've looked into his eyes, as though Cersei knows her or gives a fucking shit about what she thinks. But then things get interesting when you're on after inspecting the corpse decides. I'm out, guys. Can these guys swim? John, no. Good. I'm taking the Iron Fleet back to the Iron Islands. And Cersei's like, wait, what? He's like, listen, I've been all around the world. I've seen everything. Things you could not imagine. And this is the only thing that I've seen that terrifies me. We'll later learn that this is only a part of Euron and Cersei's ploy. But in the moment, Cersei responds by accepting the truth under one condition. John agreed to remain in the North, not take arms against the Lannisters, and not choose sides. I know Ned Stark's son will be true to his word, she says, further priming the Rhaegar reveal mm -hmm. pump, and what a pump it is. What a pump. Great That's pump. what Danny said to John too. Pretty later. good pump. What That's a pump. <laughs> when they flip over and he takes her face in his hands and he stares into her eyes and- It's beautiful. She says, that's a good pump. Uh, John, because he is John, refuses. I am true to my word, or I try to be. That is why I cannot give you what you ask. I cannot serve two queens. And I have already pledged myself to Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen. Mm -hmm. So she's like, what? Eventually, after Tyrion convinces her, heavy air quotes, given what we know about her deception to change her mind, a grand alliance is struck. My armies 
will not stand on. I will not pull them back to the capital. I will march them north to fight alongside you in the great war. Darkness is coming for us all. We will face it together. Together. And that's the key. This great alliance ahead of the great war gets top billing in the bulk of the screen time in this episode. It's nominally the thing bringing everyone together, but the unions that really count, that really propel this story and the people in it are the small ones. What's a war without the soldiers, after all? You know who never wanted to be a soldier? Tell me. Rhaegar Targaryen. That's true. He wanted to play the harp. That's it. Why not? To sing. That's it. Be in the streets, singing. And if we're talking about unions, mm-hmm. we have got to start. Have to. With the dragons and the wolves. Yep. Give this episode its name. Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. Guys, <laughs> this is it. This is it. Part of the reason that people struggled with the way the Prince Ragger <laughs> yes. reveal went down is because this should have been treated right. as a monumental thing from the Huge. word go. Because yes. it is monumental. This entire story begins, right. even though show watchers didn't realize it for some time, with the union of dragon and wolf. The event that sparked Robert's rebellion and literally birthed yes. Jon Snow, a.k.a. Aegon Targaryen. Promise me, Ned. Promise me. Aegon. Unbelievable that his name is Aegon. It's crazy, really. Quick sidebar. Yeah. What do you think about his name being Aegon? <laughs> I think, you know, from the perspective of Ragar, a.k.a. Rhaegar, being a true adherent to prophecy, I guess it makes uh, some sort of sense. Right. I don't think you would have lost that bit of the story by naming him Jaehaerys or something that, naming him something other than the name of his son that was alive at the time. So it's weird. <laughs> right. I We talked about this a bit on Talk the Thrones. Like, yeah. on the one hand, it's very cool to link John so clearly and so firmly to yes. Targaryen lore. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the fact that this is his name, that Lyanna chose to give him this name, will reinforce the fact that she and Rhaegar were in love, that she was not, in fact, kidnapped and raped, right? Right. But John's an original. He is an original. So I don't like him sharing this name. Especially considering Aegon was probably alive when John's name was picked. Tough. Yeah. Tough, tough, tough. But R plus L equals J or R plus L equals A. Sure. This is, I'm going to need some new T-shirts, man. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that equation, that mystery, and now that answer, it's the animating force behind this tale. A secret, forbidden love that tore apart a realm, caused millions of deaths. And we think, we think, gave rise to the one person who could save the world. The song of ice and fire incarnate, Jon Snow, Aegon Targaryen. Choice. Yes. Choice is a central theme of this story. We talk about that a lot. Westeros is a world where you do not always get to choose. That's right. Strict class case system where... Your responsibility to your family, your duty to your region, to your realm, often takes precedence over any personal desire that you might have. A noble cannot simply marry who he or she wants. And we've seen this many times. Many times. Well, a little tangent here, though. Shouts to Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies. That's right. People love them. Jenny Voldstones, who got a little mention down at the Citadel earlier this season. Proud of them. Romantic love. Follow your hearts, guys. But... Patrophiles can be the difference between war and peace yes. in this realm. The way to an official union can often be a marriage pact. Kings, lords, 
less so ladies because the fucking patriarchy is right. very real it's my sisters real. you hear me <laughs> <laughs> but these people wield extraordinary power but their lives are also bound by these ancient rules that dictate which children will inherit and who basically has to make do with right. what's left over and obviously a lot of this story is about the second sons yeah. right the people who do not always get first dibs Tywin Lannister Fingerprints are still all over this story, even yes. though he hasn't been with us in a couple seasons. He was forever going on about legacy, about the family name. He understood the rules of the game better than pretty much anyone, and he didn't really have time for anybody who tried to buck the system. It's part right. of why he rarely had patience for his own children. But time is not the hero of the story, guys, is he? Nope. Right? And there's a reason for that. Kindness, love, attraction. Those are... Very natural, very important human feelings. They are precious in any case, in any scenario, in any world, but especially so in this story. And the weight and history of Westeros in so many respects was against Rhaegar and Lyanna. Their love affair was profoundly unwise. It was completely irresponsible. Yep. It's not at all unreasonable that people out there are asking as they learn this, watching this show, reading columns, listening yeah. to podcasts, wait a minute. Right. All these people are dead because these guys just wanted to go yeah. fuck? <laughs> Essentially, yes. Like, that is actually a valid question to ask. Yes. But when is love ever wise? When is a love worth having ever really responsible? Bran, finally... <laughs> is starting to piece this all together, processing this with Sam's help. And he puts some of this into, into words. He says Robert's rebellion was built on a lie. This is as he watches Rhaegar and Lyanna wed by High Septon Maynard, he of the many shits, all chronicled <laughs> so in his shits. diary. Lots and lots of shits, guys. The way we should say, the way that this reveal was directed, was shot, was edited together, spliced with shots of John and Danny finally uniting with Bran's voiceover, the visions that we've seen in the past, Tower yes. of Joy, and that are new to us, extremely powerful and potent. Bran continues to say amen to us. Rhaegar didn't kidnap my aunt or rape her. He loved her and she loved him. And Bran's voice fades and we hear... Liana, the one line that we didn't hear last season in the finale. She whispers into her brother's ear, her brother who fought a war to save her. His name is Aegon Targaryen. You have to protect him. Promise me, Ned. Promise me. And then Bran's voice returns. He's never been a bastard. He's the heir to the Iron Throne. He needs to know. We need to tell him. This is what this entire story has been about. And the idea that two people finding each other and choosing to be together when yes. they shouldn't have, when they knew it was wrong and when they knew what it would cost, would determine the fate of the world. That's why we read stories like this. That's why we watch shows like this. That's why people care about these characters and the choices they make. And to finally have that clarity, to finally understand, even though we knew 
But to hear it spoken aloud, to hear it pumping out of our speakers, to see it before our eyes, it's really hard to describe how yeah. meaningful that is. But what does it mean for Ajon himself? Because he had a union he his did. own this episode. He did. And shouts to Ajon for getting the hint, finally. <sighs> I know. You really know, proud of him for choosing to go to that cabin. That was like kind of against the odds, I think. Absolutely. Usually you need, I think, I I bet the deleted scene is Davos being, are you going to go over that? <laughs> I, was, I think you should. Just, man, season one feels like a really long time ago, but it's true. give yourself the pleasure of rewatching the Sam oh, John yeah. <laughs> yes. Castle Black scene where so they're good. talking about Roz. And so you didn't know where to put it. <laughs> How far John has come. Come quite far. Well, he's a natural. Danny and John, their love and, uh, you know, it's somewhat unnaturally staged, but ultimately very satisfying physical consummation. Hashtag sex, sex boat. Sex boat. Sex boat is the bookend to Rhaegar and Lyanna's star-crossed relationship, both in the physical sense. John is, of course, Rhaegar and Lyanna's son. Danny is Rhaegar's little sister, making her John's aunt. But also in the spiritual sense, these two were meant to be together. And it was Rhaegar and Lyanna's love that made Danny and John's love possible. And after over 20 years for book fans, 20 years, getting old, wow. everyone, wow. six seasons and change for show watchers. And um, about two and a half episodes after all of us who watched Danny making fuck me eyes at John and the dragon glass <laughs> cave scream, guys, just do it already. Finally happened. They fucked. <laughs> Theirs is a union upon which only the fate of the entire world depends. No big deal. No. John might be the rightful heir to the Targaryen dynasty, but Danny holds most of the power. The Dothraki and the Insulated take their lead from her. That won't change regardless of marital status, regardless of the line of succession. The, you know, the Dothraki promise to follow her into the grave. That's not going away. Grey Worm is not going to be like, oh, John is the boss? No, that's not happening. Danny freed him from slavery. That's not going to happen. Danny Dragons, at least for now, We'll only answer her call. The importance of John in this union is to cool Danny's more fiery and traditionally Targaryen impulses, much the same role which Tyrion describes later in the episode of Cersei when he foolishly goes to meet her alone. He says she knows herself. She chose an advisor who would check her worst impulses instead of feeding them. And of course, we expect that despite what Miriam Asdor said or didn't say in the show. Right. This union of dragon and wolf, we expect, will produce drago wolf babies. Aww. There's just too much womb talk. Quickening. For there not to be a quickening, guys. There's a quickening happening. Tyrion says last episode. Chekhov's quickening. Chekhov's quickening. That's stuff, I'm telling you. There's some quickening happening. Tyrion says last episode, you say you can't have children, but there are other ways of choosing successor, priming us there for that idea that she can't. And then later, this episode, John and Danny in the dragon pit just kind of you know, stepping away from the crowd, that little private moment, they can steal away from everyone. You know how it is, guys. I hope Sneaking you do. Sneaking into the hallways. Yeah. John says, you're not like everyone else and your family hasn't seen its end. You're still here. So are you, eh, John? <laughs> Love that. I know. Oh, Danny says, I can't have children. John, who told you that? And this is an incredible line. Danny, the witch who murdered my husband. <laughs> writing has suffered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, boy. <laughs> Poetry. Unbelievable. And John says, has it occurred to you she may not be a reliable source of information? Is that a quickening whoops music? Oh, yeah! 
make much of it on Sunday on Talk of Thrones, but John and Danny both finally being in King's Landing is huge. Yes. Uh, some classic John moments here. That's more people than the entire North crammed into that. Why would anyone want to live that way? John, you will soon find out. And interestingly, this comment also mirrors Ned's discomfort with the Capitol, which you'll remember from season one, just the way he complained mm -hmm. about it, the heat, the danger of the place. Yep. He didn't like it. John patterned his life after Ned. There's so much Ned in this episode, even though he's hasn't been with us for many seasons. When John eventually discovers that Lord Stark isn't his father, it will shake him to his core. Yes. And who did John cite when he decided not to lie to Cersei by making a pledge that he had no intention of upholding Ned? I'm not going to swear an oath I can't uphold. Talk about my father if you want. Tell me that's the attitude that got him killed, which it is. Yeah. But when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. And then there's no more answers, only better and better lies. And lies won't help us in this fight. How do you think these two are going to respond to eventually learning that they are related? You know, I don't actually worry about them. I worry about the people around them. Mm -hmm. There's no better person in this story to be partnered with in power than John. Right. Because he's he'll be the guy who's like, you know what? You take it. I'm good. Right. I don't need it. I'm happy to let you take it. It's the people around them that will be like, well, you know, John. You're the king, man. Like, be the king. Right. So, yeah, I don't, I don't particularly worry about them. Yeah, I think that the Oedipal complex thing is real, and John yeah. will probably struggle with that a bit. But I worry more about Danny than him. Oh, 100%. Because Danny, it will, it will bother. Yeah. The fact that he is the heir is a threat to her, even if, and I agree with you, even if he has no right. designs on that power, on sitting in that Iron Throne, she will still perceive him as one more roadblock because it's it's been a life of roadblocks for yes. her. One of the things, of course, that helps Danny overcome these roadblocks, finally, is the birth of her dragons. And that is a union that continues to fascinate us. And part of what was really interesting in this finale was hearing Danny kind of talk about that a bit in fairly puzzling terms. Yes. Um, <laughs> but just the initial moment of her arrival, there's some humor with the where's Danny stuff, right? Cersei wants to know why she Yeah, where do you think she is? Should, like, what? Well, right, guys, come on. Where does everyone think she is? She's going to fly in on her dragon. Come on, guys. If you had one, you'd do that too. Yeah. And when she finally does fly in on Drogon, we see Rhaegal in the background. Watching Drogon and Danny enter the dragon pit is yeah. actually genuinely very special. It's it breathtaking. is particularly amazing to think about it from Drogon's perspective. Actually, when he starts scaling, climbing down the walls of that pit, this is the place where his kin yeah. were caged. Crazy. Seeing this, being in this new location. It is a reminder of Danny's connection to this Targaryen lore, the bond between dragon and Targaryen. Built a dynasty. Yep. That is what forged the Seven Kingdoms. But that reality does not make it any less bizarre to hear Danny talk about that history because the way that she discusses this shows a, I think we think, a fairly astonishing lack of self-awareness yeah. and like maybe a dangerous lack of self-awareness. Self yeah. She says to John, this place was the beginning of the end for my family. She speaks in Valerian first and then translates for him here. A dragon is not a slave. Guys, shouts to Crazy Kras. Yeah, man. A little callback to what she said to him there before crisping him, right? She continues. They were terrifying, extraordinary. They filled people with wonder and awe, and we locked them in here. They wasted away. They grew small. 
and we grew small as well. We weren't extraordinary without them. We were just like everyone else. And I think the intention of that is for you to really be bowled over by the power of that idea. But for us, we literally turned to each other and we're like, what the (laughs) fuck is she talking about? Because that's literally what she did in Marine. She She chained Ray Galavisarian, two of her children. She didn't even let them out. They had to break out. Yes. Chained them in the catacombs. This is like a huge part of why Viserion is dead. Yes. He was undersized. Undersized. Didn't get to stretch and grow. Didn't, didn't know have how, the practice, the reps that no Drogon experience. had. Never bonded with a rider right. because she never considered, oh, should I find riders for my other two dragons? That is a heavy weight to bear. We talked yeah. about recently the burden that that should have on her, but she isn't quite connecting those dots. And to hear her elsewhere in the episode say to John, glad you're loyal to me, but my dragon died for this. Yeah. It's like, Danny. Take, take a little ownership over what happened here. The other thing here, of course, is that where did Viserion end up? Well, the Night King rode him at the end of this episode. The season seven finale, as many people had long predicted, yep. featured the wall crumbling because the Night King flew Danny's dragon, reanimated as a white. And fire, ice, we're magical sure. propulsion magical, force. Yeah. We're not blue flames of pure magic? We don't know. Is it would, hot? Is it cold? Would be what great if the show had clarified right. this. Breaks down the wall. The fact that the enemy has a dragon. The fact that Viserion is with the Night King, part of the army of the dead. This is an unwelcome union. Yes. Clearly, for the rest of the realm. But it is also a terrifyingly powerful one. Because Chekhov's wall had stood since the end of the long night. Yeah. And to see it crumble under the force of Viserion's blast to shatter not only the physical ice, but the magic that had kept out the dead and to allow the walkers and their whites to finally march through. Extremely cool to watch. This was a thrilling couple minutes of television, but it is obviously not good news for the people who we care about. This changes the game and elevates the stake in a way that really only John and a few other people are prepared for. This Danny dragon lesson also applies to John and Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Do we literally not see him this season? We did not see Ghost this season. Oh, man, that fucking pisses me off. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) I'm getting heated. God damn it. Why does this matter aside from our feelings? Yeah. As animal lovers, it matters because these unions between John and Danny and their fantastic beasts is... Not actually a sideshow. It is a rare and wonderful and very special and powerful thing. And failing to appreciate that bond, not just as a tool, right, as a means to achieving something, but as a source of protection and companionship and bone, mind, deep understanding is a tragic tragic. misstep. It's tough. Also, considering how much time is being spent foreshadowing Danny's inevitable pregnancy— And her role as a mother, and of course how much this episode and really this season and obviously just the the entire series has hung on the question of John's parentage, it's all tied up. It's all a reminder that the union between parent and child is a sacred thing, but also at times a dangerous thing. Siblings. Oh boy. Oof. Let's talk about the Starks. In retrospect, after the last 30 minutes of this episode, you can kind of understand, I think, why the showrunners probably felt it necessary to sow discord among the Stark siblings. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I can see their point. In our episode four pod, when Arya returned to Winterfell, we talked about how the reunited Starks had the makings of a really formidable team. Sansa, 
As the leader and the planner, 20,000 armed men take their orders from her. She knows what moves to make, what questions to ask. Arya's the assassin. She can take out threats and root out enemies with precision. And Bran can see around corners. Who could stand against them? The path to the finale has been clunky and often bizarrely depicted. But we did get that union, and it was satisfying. And the scene with Littlefinger in the feasting hall when Sansa and Arya finally turn the tables on the, that scheming snake, Baelish. We finally see... A unified Stark family hit their stride. And as telegraphed as the scene was, like when we were watching it, oh, yeah. in the moment we were like, oh, now it's going to be, they're going to turn to Peter and be like, oh, yeah. It's still you. dope, though. It's still great. <laughs> still as dope. As telegraphed <laughs> as it was, it was immensely satisfying to watch uh, Peter, please. Peter. Watch his swagger melt away and be replaced by this cold, cloying really naked cowardice. Uh, the man who lived in the shadows, leaning against walls, making moves, died center stage on his knees. Sansa, addressing Arya, we think, in front of the gathered Knights of the Vale and, and Lords of the North, says, you stand accused of murder. You stand accused of treason. How do you answer these charges? Pause. Lord Baelish. And Littlefinger is like, wait, what? <laughs> the, the payoff for Littlefinger walling camp? Yeah, so strong. good. Very, very strong. strong. Because he actually, it doesn't register for a second. Oh, yeah. And then he's like, wait, what? <laughs> and so Arya, you know, dives in with the support. My sister asked you a question. And those words, my sister, mm. spoken by Arya in support of Sansa after their long journey back to each other, carry immense emotional weight and importance. Yes. Littlefinger, of course, tries to parry these charges. All true charges, by the way. Mm -hmm. That he pushed Lysa Aaron out the moon door. That he poisoned John Aaron kickstarting the entire story, basically. That he manufactured, in large part, the enmity between House Stark and House Lannister. They betrayed Cat Stark and Ned Stark. This last point, Baelish strenuously denies. He says, I deny it! None of you were there to see the truth. There were 300 people in the <laughs> throne room, but that's beside the point. <laughs> ah! But what about the Stark who sees everything everywhere? And Bran says, you held a knife to his throat. You said, I did warn you not to trust me. And Littlefinger is stunned. Arya slips the dragonbone-hilted Valerian dagger from its scabbard. She says, you told our mother that this knife belonged to Tyrion Lannister, but that was another one of your lies. It was yours. And the symbolism here is incredible. Just think about this for a second. This is the weapon that shed the blood of Cat Stark as she tried to protect her son, Bran. Yes. And that weapon is now in the hands of her daughter, Arya, who on the order of Cat's other daughter, Sansa, and with Bran's help, uses it to balance, finally, the scales of justice. There's also the poetry of Littlefinger, the master puppeteer, finally getting tangled in his own strings. Early in the episode, he tried to turn Sansa against Arya by saying, sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't you sometimes. dare deprive us of this bit of voice work. Sometimes I try to understand a person's motives. I play a little game. I assume the worst. What's the worst reason they could possibly have for saying what they say and doing what they do? And then I ask myself, how well does that reason explain what they say and what they do? To hear Sansa <laughs> parrot this line back to him oh, so good. is pure poetry, pure bliss. The symmetry of life. It's really the, the symmetry of a story that's been going on for a long time that you weren't even sure was going to get here because there's been so many tragedies and things along the way. And she says you know, the exact same thing to him. He closes his eyes upon hearing this, despondent. He that knows look. it's amazing. He oh, knows, God. ah, checkmate. I see. You learned too much from me, oh, he seems God. to be thinking in that moment. His attempt to forge a union with her in his arrogance and his longing, his lust for her, and his 
lust for power alike. That was his undoing. And when Sansa says, when you brought me back to Winterfell, you told me there's no justice in the world, not unless we make it. Thank you for your many lessons, Lord Baelish. I will never forget them. And Arya puts the knife to his throat. And think about what we're seeing, a mirror of the moment when Littlefinger betrayed Ned in the throne room, but now in Ned's home in front of his children. The pupil becomes the master. Sansa throwing his own lines in his face, telling him, I'm a slow learner, it's true, but I learn. Affirmation of Sansa's arc, all the things she's been through. And interestingly, Shades of Danny, when she says to Zarozoan Daxos, thank you, Zarozoan Daxos, for teaching me this lesson. We learn things from the people we unite with, ultimately, whether we want to or not. And, you know, like this scene is interesting because of Isaac Hampstead Wright did an interview where he talked about a deleted scene in which Bran basically tells his siblings what's going on. They're like, we need help. What what is happening here? What's going on with Littlefinger? And he tells them. Clearly, the people in that room had talked before Arya was brought in because Lord Royce does not flinch when the charge that Littlefinger pushed Lysa Aaron out the moon door is leveled. He is unsurprised. Right. So clearly there was some f- kind of talk beforehand. Why we got we got that cut and we got 10 minutes of Theon? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Littlefinger's downfall in the end was caused by his hubris, his arrogance, and his misunderstanding of family. The former stemmed from his many successes in causing chaos. He's good at it. And the latter comes from his upbringing, his loner lifestyle. He never considered that the woman he groomed, briefly, sure, as kind of this pretend protege, but really as a chess piece to be moved around the board, could ever surpass him in in influence and power. He didn't understand that family members, even those who haven't been around each other for years, who may not even really know each other, will just naturally pull together when some outside force tries to pull them apart. Um, And especially a family like the Starks, who have individually been through indescribable horrors and are finally once more home. That home is each other as much as it is Winterfell. And that's something a man like Peter Baelish could never comprehend. He says when walking with Sansa to the Eyrie in season four, know your strengths, use them wisely, and one man can be worth 10,000. One man, just one man. Contrast that with Ned's words spoken by Sansa and Arya together on the Winterfell battlements after Littlefinger's death, mirroring the way Jon and Sansa stood there um, when they were working on their union in the season six finale, Arya says. In winter, we must protect ourselves, look after one another. And Sansa understands what's happening. He says, Father. And then says the rest of the line, when the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And the irony and the tragedy of this scene is Ned, because he couldn't share his secrets, was the lone wolf. What would have happened if he would have told his family what was going on? Who knows? Such a great question. Um, and their union also shows us that Ned's legacy is very real, but altered, as legacies sh- should be. Ned always said that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Arya and Sansa discuss this idea. Sansa says, you did it. Arya says, I was just the executioner. You passed the sentence. And this isn't shameful just because it isn't exactly what Ned would have done. It's a sign of their union. It's a sign of their willingness to share responsibility in ruling the North. One of them passed the sentence and the other one swung the sword, but they found justice together. It's beautiful. It really, is. it really is. It's almost too beautiful in the sense that I think it makes us lament the prior yes. episodes even more than maybe we already but, uh, had. Like, it wasn't the kind of thing where we thought, oh, okay, they stuck the landing with this particular storyline, right. so we're okay this with is, the missteps along yes. the way. It was, why couldn't we have gotten 
more of this? Why didn't they start just somewhere a few notches below this? Right. You know, have have a little bit finger be a more robust threat working the Knights of the Veil. They can't figure out how to how to break him. But it certainly didn't make sense that Sansa and Arya would be so at each other's throats off jump, off pretexts that don't make sense within the world. It was tough. I wish we had gotten this sooner. I agree. I think it's also interesting to hear a lot of people say that they're dissatisfied with Littlefinger's death because it feels like basically the stakes were too small for him at right. the end. But I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that either. And I think that's where the real kind of poetry of it, as we said, comes from the fact that when it came time to actually interact on like the human level, he was outclassed. Jamie and Cersei. My yeah. goodness, what an episode for these wow. two. The Jamie Cersei scene in this episode was one of the first times in the season yeah. that we basically felt like the show might really shock us. Yeah. Again. I, I was scared. Terrified. Because even the things in this season that like thrilled us and were actually good. Yeah. Not everything, but a lot of it was stuff that, that people who spent a lot of time thinking about the story had anticipated. Yeah. Considering for a moment that maybe we had it wrong, maybe we had the Valonqar theory wrong the entire no. time and that Cersei was actually going to be the one to kill Jamie. that is Thrones at its best at when its it can best. make you feel that way. Jamie and Cersei's very quickly fraying union yeah. began as arguably the most intimate of any of the unions that we're discussing today. They literally began life as one in the same womb. And they've spent most of their time in the world for the most part, secretly trying to return to that. How many times have we heard them say, you and me? Right. Only ones who matter. That's it. A womb of their own making. They created together three children, Joffrey, Marcella, Tommen, from that desire to share life together. All three of those children are now dead. Cersei rules supreme in King's Landing, and she and Jamie are living basically openly as a couple, just asking for fresh sheets. <laughs> so it is truly fascinating to consider as their relationship dissolves, whether it was in some part that very secrecy that us against the world right. literally by necessity and definition, by nature and norms, mentality that bonded them so closely together in the first place. The idea that Jamie would at some point turn against Cersei with deadly consequences has been out there for a long time. You guys yeah. have heard us discuss it on this podcast many, many times. times. Many, 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 many. personal shared favorite of Yes. Maggie the Frog's Valancor prophecy appears in Feast for Crows. Jason, how many years ago was that Jesus. tome published? 13 years ago. We're getting so old, my oh, friends, God. all of us. Oh my God, George, get to it. Come on, George. Buddy, the show version of Cersei's Prophecy, which opens season five, right. does not include the Valonqar line about his hands around your pale white throat. We've always considered that a choice of consequence, yes. a choice of note. <laughs> Perhaps they thought that it would signal too clearly right. what was happening, what was going to happen yep. between these two. But in that time, in these years, we have spent Quite a while wondering yeah. what it would take to finally drive Jamie if he is ultimately to be the one who fulfills this prophecy. Right. And hey, maybe he won't be. Maybe he's not. Maybe he won't Plenty be. Plenty of other valid considerations. Many. Sure. But if it's him, what will it take to get him to that point? In books, they are strange. Jamie is 
very hurt. Yeah. Because Cersei is with other men. Having sex with other guys. Kettle Blacks, what's up? Shouts. Shouts to the Kettle Blacks. Yes. On the show, we really thought that Cersei's decision to do the thing that Jamie sacrificed his honor to prevent, to blow up part of King's Landing, yeah. would be the final straw. And when it wasn't, we had a bit of a crisis of confidence here. True. <laughs> what would it take? What could it be? Well, guys, we finally found out the deaths of their children and the near destruction of their house also did not prove enough to drive Jamie away. We thought for sure that some reveal of infidelity on Cersei's part would do it, much like in the books. Yeah. And that is part of why we have been wondering about this baby. <clears throat> yeah. Could it be Euron's? Because, guys, there's no way that they're meeting to discuss secret yeah, plans and not fucking. They're fucking. They're fucking. Euron seems like a DTF type of guy. <laughs> I'd say so. I'd say so. So what was it? Finally, after all that, it was Cersei not only asking, but expecting that Jamie would break his word. Jamie is discussing plans to fight the White Walkers with the Lannister generals on that big map. Big map. <laughs> what Important. a season. Dumb plan. Big, big crossbow. Map. Big, big map. map. <laughs> Loot train. Loot train. Loot train. He's discussing yeah. plans when Cersei interrupts. What are you doing? She wants to know. Jamie's like, uh, preparing. Yeah. For the expedition. North. We just had that meeting. Yeah. In the Dragon remember pit. the remember <laughs> when everyone said, came to King's right. Landing to talk about the plan? Yeah. Expedition North, she says mockingly. I always knew you were the stupidest Lannister. Wow. The look on his face was, right then. Yeah. The Starks and Targaryens have united against us, and you want to fight alongside them? Are you a traitor <laughs> or an idiot? Jamie says, You pledged our forces to fight our common enemy. Cersei says, I'll say whatever I need to say right. to ensure the survival of our house. You expect me to trust the man who murdered our father? You expect me to command our troops to fight beside foreign scum to fight the Dragon Queen? Side note, guys. Yeah. She's the one who just contracted with the top mercenaries in Essos. Yeah. So, right? So, yeah, you know, classic Cersei, really. Classic Cersei. Jamie says, you saw it with your own eyes. You saw a dead man trying to kill us. She replies, and I saw it burn. If dragons can't stop them, if Dothraki and Unsullied and Northmen can't stop them, how will our armies make a difference? And Jamie goes on to point out and argue the existential nature of yeah. the conflict. It's the living versus the dead. It's not about this faction of living versus that faction of living. And then he comes to what is his most important point, not only in this conversation, but really in his life. I made a promise. Yeah. And they continue to spar over the nature of conflict. And Jamie points out, hey, uh, you realize that no matter who wins up there, that victor is going to ride south and try to kill us. Yep. Like, what do we always say about Cersei? She's acting rashly. She never really thinks about the consequences. And here, he's trying to do her a service, really, by yep. pointing out what those consequences might be. But she's not willing to listen. She tells Jamie that she has been conspiring with Euron without his knowledge. And he is devastated. Yep. He is crestfallen. This is the final thread of trust and love between them snapping. You plotted with Euron Greyjoy without telling me. The commander of your armies, he says, and left unspoken is your brother, your right. lover, supposedly the most important person yes. in your life. And she fairly points out that Jamie did the same thing when he met with Tyrion in Big Crossbow Basement. 
Jamie returns to the one point that matters to him so forcefully. His word to the realm, that means less than nothing. It is sullied and soiled. They see a callow, handsome, rich boy man who broke his oath, who killed the king he swore to protect when it was convenient for him to do so. They don't know that Jamie saved so many lives when he made that choice, that he sacrificed part of himself to make sure that those people would be okay. And he never thought that he'd get a chance to wash that stain off of his name to get another opportunity to be the knight that he could have been, that he tried to be, that Brienne, who we'll talk about in a minute, has tried to get him to believe that he can be again. The Great War is that chance for him. And he knows it. And it's not just that he knows it. He welcomes it. Yeah. He's really rising to the occasion here. He wants to be a part of this fight. He wants to help. He wants people to feel like they can count on him. And without asking him, without talking to him about it, Cersei, the person who is literally part of him, expects him to simply let go of all of that. And he can't do it. He won't. Jamie says, I pledge to ride north. I intend to honor that pledge, which he does. After a moment where we truly think. That was, wow. She might order the mountain to kill him. Yeah. I mean, we hear a blade pull out of its scabbard. The look on his face when he thinks that basically his entire life has been a miscalculation is really a master class of how a quiet moment can tell you everything you need to know about a person. Yeah. Final shot of Jamie astride his warhorse, slipping a glove over his golden hand, a snowflake lighting on the leather. It's among the best moments in the episode. Part of what is so compelling and captivating about it is that he's on a black horse. He's in a black cloak. He's pulling on these black gloves. He's basically masking his Lannister colors, his Lannister signifiers. And even before this, even before we saw Cersei and Jaime have this falling out, we saw small signs of his budding concern back at the beginning of the episode when Cersei says to the mountain, if anything goes wrong, kill the silver-haired bitch first, then our brother, then the bastard who calls himself king. The rest of them you can kill in any order you see fit. Jaime looks horrified. Yeah. He has always wanted to keep his word, but every moment with Cersei seemingly is a reminder that she doesn't care about doing so. Jaime and Tyrion, when you're on verbally assaults Tyrion at the beginning of the summit. We never even let your kind live in the islands. You know, we kill you at birth. An act of mercy for the parents. Jamie jumps in to defend him. Perhaps you ought to sit down. And Jamie has really always been Tyrion's defender for his whole life. When Oberyn Martell first visited the Rock when Tyrion was a baby, it was Jamie who stopped Cersei from abusing the child in front of their guests. When he was held captive in the Vale. In season one, Tyrion's first thought was to call Jaime as his champion. It was Jaime who saved Tyrion from execution, an act which led directly to the death of their father, Tywin. Their love and affection for each other against all odds in a violent and unforgiving world is, along with the relationship between Sansa and Arya, the soul of the show, really. When Tyrion meets Jaime outside of Cersei's chambers, they speak in a shorthand, really, that only brothers could share. It's a conversation that seems casual, but really hides depths of feeling and history. Tyrion says, you spoke to her. Jamie says, until she kicked me out, she thinks I was an idiot to trust you. Lots of people seem to think that, actually. And Tyrion says, I'm about to step into a room with the most murderous woman in the world who's already tried to kill me twice that I know of. (laughs) Who's the idiot? And Jamie grins just a little bit, but also, like, wearily and sadly. Then he shrugs and says, I I suppose we should say goodbye. One idiot to another. And then he 
reluctantly stands aside to let his brother walk into a place where he knows he cannot protect him. And then it's Cersei and Tyrion. Mm. What a scene. Wow. Andy Greenwald's favorite. A lot of wine. Well, on one end, <laughs> Cersei's relished torturing, hurting Tyrion since Tyrion was a baby his entire life, since before he could possibly even muster a defense of himself. And this is a theme of this story. People who are injured by their protectors. Remember in season four, episode seven. When we met your sister, she promised she would show you to us. Every day we would ask, every day she would say, soon. Then she and your brother took us to your nursery and she unveiled the freak. We didn't try to hide our disappointment. That's not a monster, I told Cersei. That's just a baby. And she said he killed my mother. And she pinched your little cock so hard I thought she might pull it off until your brother made her stop. It doesn't matter, she told us. Everyone says he will die soon. I hope they are right. He should not have lived this long. So just as Jamie has always been Tyrion's protector, you know, Cersei has always been his persecutor. And now Cersei finally has her chance, free and clear, an easy shot to murder her brother. And Tyrion tries to goad her into it almost. Very interestingly, he says, you love your family and I have destroyed it. I will always be a threat. So put an end to me. If it weren't for me, you'd have a mother. If it weren't for me, you'd have a father. If it weren't for me, you'd have two beautiful children. I've thought about killing you more times than I can count. Do it. Say the word. And the mountain slides his sword just a few inches out of its scabbard. And Cersei, shockingly, really has to be said, shockingly, loses her nerve. It's worth wondering why. Is this an acknowledgement that she's outgunned, that murdering her brother Danny's hand would mean the certain fiery end of her regime? Does she love her position and her power more than she hates Tyrion? And, or do these two have more in common than we or they want to admit when Davos and Danny are giving John grief and refusing Cersei's deal, Tyrion chimes in with some advice that Cersei would probably appreciate. Have you ever considered learning how to lie every now and then? Just a bit. <laughs> and when Cersei says to Tyrion, the goal you've been working toward your entire life, the destruction of this family, he's offended, not just because he's frustrated and trying to get through to her, but because he's trapped in the same cycle he used to be with Tywin. All he ever wanted to do was be part of this family, but they won't let him do it. They've driven him to this place, essentially. And in order to save his own life, this is what he's had to do. Cersei has always hated Tyrion, as we showed. So it isn't accurate to say that Tywin's death, as Cersei intimates, is the reason why they can't unite. But it's an affirmation in Cersei's mind. First, you killed our mother by being born. Then you killed our father. Making the Lannister Union vulnerable is one thing she cannot forgive. She, she like Tywin, puts too much stock in the family name, the legacy. And as she says to him, I don't care about checking my worst impulses. I don't care about making the world a better place. Hang the world. Mm. Some unions like John and Danny are built to save. Others like Cersei's with really anyone are built to tear down everyone else. Mal, mm. there's been a lot of speculation that these two struck a deal that after this scene ends, right. it continues and they forge some kind of agreement. A lot of that hinges on Tyrion lurking creepily. Under the stairs as the hump sounds emanate from the... Listening to the dragon screech and the oh. wolf howl. Oh. Uh, I don't buy it. Me neither. I think that something weird is going on with Tyrion, certainly. I I do too. And we can speculate on what that might be. But the idea that Tyrion 
would flat out betray his alliance with yeah, Danny. doesn't sit with me, period. But the fact that he would do it to align with Cersei, to strike a bargain with Cersei, is almost impossible for me to believe. They yeah. hate each other. And the hate thing is, the scene, the scene doesn't make sense if that's true. Even right. if it's just what happens after. Like, the venom is so real and so pure. And even when Tyrion is trying to say, you know, I loved those children, yeah. that their deaths shredded him, truly. Yeah. And that's a sincere feeling for him. Even then, he can't help but say to her, yeah, I've wanted you dead right. for a sure. while. And Long I know time. you want me dead. Right. So that's not just that's not something you just get over, right? Yeah. It's not. I mean, think about this. She's wanted him dead since the moment he set his tiny little baby feet into this world. Right. She's wanted to kill him. So I don't know how you get over that. Right. That's the basis of their relationship is this murderous intent between the two of them. The fact that she doesn't do it, yeah. that she lets him live, obviously is something that people are holding on to there. But Cersei is is desperate. Yeah, she and is. she knows that her numbers are few. Yeah. Despite all these all these armies she right. keeps talking about. I would pull them back. <laughs> Another set of siblings with oh, a complicated man. history. The Hound in the Mount. As soon as Cersei and her retinue entered the dragon pit, the hound makes his way right over to the mountain, yep. and he, he starts to peacock. He says, remember me? <laughs> yeah, you do. You're even fucking uglier than I am now. What did they do to you? Doesn't matter. That's not how it ends for you, brother. You know who's coming for you. You've always known. Now, naturally, the mountain cannot reply. Yeah. <laughs> and their one-on-one interactions end there. The sword-pulling shot of the Hound from the preseason trailers that we all thought foretold Clegane Oh, we thought it. Man, turned out to just be a, a zombie safety measure, yeah. <laughs> which is tough. We did not get Clegane Bowl, which is, I think, probably the biggest season seven prediction whiff sort of across oh, yeah. the realm, maybe other than Cersei dying this year and that John himself would learn the truth of his parentage this season. People were really sure. We were really sure that we were going to get Clegane Bowl. I mean, guys, I wore a Clegane Bowl shirt to the final Talk of Thrones. I really thought we were getting Clegane Bowl. We all did, Mal. But that exchange, while brief, did unambiguously promise Clegane Bowl oh, next yeah. season. When the Hound says, that's not how it ends for you, brother. You know who's coming for you. You've always known. Some people have asked if that indicates that there's like a vision or a prophecy that pertains to the mountain's death. But our, our, our read on this is much more straightforward. Yes. from. The moment that a young Gregor pushed young Sanders' face into the fire, their showdown yes. has been a lock. Absolutely. The fact that they would be each other's justice in the end, that the Hound would get his chance for vengeance, has been a guarantee. The closest thing to a guarantee in this story. The mountain forever marred the Hound, not just with facial scars, not just with a fear of flames, yep. but... With something much worse, with the crippling loneliness and sense of total abandonment that can only come when one of the people who is supposed to protect you, who's supposed to be united with you against those who would do you harm, is the one who actually harms you. Remember what the Hound said to Arya back in season four when he took the silver from the farmer and young Sally. He's weak. He can't protect himself. Remember what he told Arya elsewhere in that season after hearing her recite her list of names for the first time. 
hate's as good a thing as any to keep a person going better than most. Remember what he said to Brienne when she found him and Arya in the season four finale. There's no safety, you dumb bitch. You don't know that by now. You're the wrong one to watch over her. Remember what he said to Brother Ray in season six when Swearjin Cocksucker <laughs> asked him what keeps him going. Hate. Remember what he said to Sansa back in season two after he fled the Battle of the Blackwater, after he abandoned his post with his king and his kingdom in peril. The world is built by killers, so you better get used to looking at them. None of those statements are the words of a gruff killer who truly craves violence, who wants to partake in savagery. They're the words of a person who has only really ever wanted two things, even though he didn't realize for quite some time that he wanted one of them. To provide a protective union to someone who's in need, whether it's Sansa, whether it's Arya, and to punish the person who took that very thing away from him. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor. Sonos speakers, let me tell you something. I got these bad boys, hooked them up. I haven't got to play video games much because I've been doing this thing for four months. I haven't been (laughs) home much at all. But when I did hook it up, I played Mario Kart a little bit. You know, I forget the name of the map, but it's like, you know, Bowser and he's and there's a volcano. I think it's Bowser's volcano, literally. Anyway, the volcano sounds freaking incredible. It sounds incredible. Everything sounds better on Playbase. Movies, sports, TV shows, gaming. Playbase adds dynamic pulse pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV. Your pulse will pound and streams your favorite music when it's off. Truth is, most TVs end up on stands and furniture. Exactly what Playbase was created for. I mean, what are you going to put... When are you going to put the TV on? Gravity is important, guys. It's low-profile design practically disappears beneath your TV, yet fills your entire viewing room with epic home theater audio. Start with a Playbase, add a sub, add a pair of Play Ones for a full surround sound system. That's what I have. It sounds pretty freaking good. When I want to fall asleep, I put on the rain, the sleep sounds on, on Spotify, and it's soothing. You can even send TV or music sound around your entire home. Just add Sonos smart speakers in other rooms. They'll wirelessly sync to your home theater. And now, for the first time ever, Sonos is offering listeners of Binge Mode 10% off one order, $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Just use the promo code BINGE10, capital B-I-N-G-E-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer. Okay, now back to Binge Mode. Tiernapod. Mm. Love, love these guys. See, I do love them. You know, these two didn't get much time together, but it was heartwarming nonetheless to see them reunited, even for just a moment. And as Tyrion put it, it was a pleasant surprise in an unpleasant situation. Tyrion and Pod shared some brief touching words. Never thought I'd see you again, my lord. <laughs> Supporting the enemy, no less. Hard to blame you. Cersei will anyway. I'm glad you're alive. And they were interrupted by bronze. Come on, you can suck his <laughs> magic cock later. And what a cock it is. <laughs> What an incredible thing that thing is. Who knows what it does, what it can do. Sling that stick. Sling that stick. Move that wood, Pod. (laughs) That interjection was amusing, but this moment wasn't just merely a bit of comic relief. It's important to remember that these two were, in essence, forced into a union by Tywin, inflicted upon each other as a kind of punishment. Um, But 
true friendship and loyalty blossomed. Pod killed the Kingsguard for Tyrion. Refused to testify against Tyrion at Joffrey's murder trial. And imagine that. Podrick Payne. Incredible amount of courage. Podrick fucking Payne. It's like, no, I won't do it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable loyalty from Podrick Payne. When Tyrion said, there has never lived a more loyal squire as he implored Pod to flee King's Landing rather than risk death for refusing to turn cloak and side with Cersei. It spoke not to just their particular bond, but to the more universal power of the unlikely love that can come into your life and the friendships that can take you so fully by surprise. Bronn loves to take people by surprise. <laughs> it does. And maybe it's a good thing that he never got that better castle. or Let's not, let's not tell him that. But that better continue. bride. <laughs> Because it means he's still hanging out. The <laughs> Lannister bros. This episode opens with Grey Worm and the Unsullied lining up in front of the Red Keep. How they got there. How they got from Casterly Rock where they were trapped. We will never know. I guess we're supposed to just think Euron like, picked up and left and so then they could too. Sure. <laughs> but Bronn and Jamie, yeah, they are watching, prepping from the battlements. And as is so often the case... Ron's exchange with one of our golden-haired heroes brings unexpected insight into oh, our does. lives. It really does. Bron says, I still enjoy it when they call me my lord. <laughs> this from the guy who was like, don't expect me to my lord you every time you take right. a shit. It's Tyrion. <laughs> Back in season one, Jamie says, the thrill will fade. Bron says, if we live that long. Then he's looking out at the Unsullied, just reflecting, thinking about stuff. Yeah, says, as we do. Men without cocks. Unbelievable. <laughs> you wouldn't find me fighting in an army if I had no cock. <laughs> What's left to fight for? Jamie says gold. Bron says, I spent my life around soldiers. What do you think they spend that gold on? <laughs> Something for the cock. Jamie is actually like a very sweet response. Family? <laughs> and recall now that Jamie Lannister is the most monogamous person in this story. Oh my God. The craziest thing in this entire story. Yeah. Seriously. It is. It befuddles. Bron says, not without a cock, you don't. And then Jamie comes in with not only the line of the episode and possibly the season, but maybe of our lives. <laughs> maybe it really is all cocks in the end. <laughs> I mean, it was in the end of this episode. <laughs> Great stuff. I wonder if he's seen... Uh, your tweet of the screenshot of our text message exchange where we uh, had about 75 phallic emoji in a row. It was uh, pretty While great. talking about John's boner. <laughs> <laughs> I will miss those exchanges, Mel. No, we'll keep them going. Yeah. We'll keep them going. And yet, Bron says, your brother has chosen to side with the cockless. And Jamie says, well, he's always been a champion of the downtrodden. And speaking of that brother, Tyrion and Bron. Have a little moment here as well. Tyrion says to Bronn, perhaps you've been reconsidering your allegiances. Remember my offer? Whatever they're paying you, I'll pay double. Good he deal. is indeed on the record here. And Bronn kind of fronts that this was all part of his plan all along. He's in a great spot, guys. I put yourself at risk, he says. Important difference. It's your head queen Cersei's offered a bag of gold for. Not mine. Now, thanks to me, she's got two traitors' heads coming right to her door. <laughs> This is a good spot to remind all of you that Varys, the other traitor yes. he's referencing here, issues his one line Shout <laughs> of dialogue to in this episode. Varys having one line of dialogue in a season finale. It's just... It. <laughs> 
It's astonishing. I'll never get over it. It's astonishing. Brian continues. She can lop them both off as soon as she gets tired of the clever words that pour out of their pie holes. <laughs> All thanks to Sir Bron of the fucking Blackwater. If that's not looking out for myself, I don't know what is. To which Tyrion replies perfectly. It's good to see you again. These two can pick up right where they left off. Remember how Tyrion responded to Bronn, refusing to be his champion in the trial by combat against the Mountain in season four. Why are you sorry? Yeah. Tyrion said. Because you're an evil bastard with no conscience and no heart? That's what I liked about you in the first place. The Tyrion Bronn, it's so good. The Tyrion Bronn bond has always been a useful reminder that unions That's can right. take many forms and so can admiration. The Hound and Brienne, the moment when, and this is one of like the warmest, mm. best moments in what was essentially a very uneven episode. The moment when the Hound and Brienne first spot each other walking up to the dragon pit is subtly an episode highlight, as is their Arya-centric exchange, which occurs during the walk-up. Brienne says, I thought you were dead. And says, not yet. You came pretty close. And there's something like admiration in his voice. I was only trying to protect her. She's talking about Arya, Brienne. You and me both. Brienne says, she's alive. Arya. And the Hound is intrigued. Where? Winterfell. Love this. Well, who's protecting her if you're here? Ah, such a good moment. It's a great moment because it- He really cares. He cares about her. Yes. They shared something together. And Brienne says, the only one who needs protecting is the one who gets in her way. And he smiles. Love that. Yeah. It won't be me. And they share this moment, this look, Brienne and the Hound, of admiration for this person that they both know and are happy to see that they underestimated. It's a quietly beautiful moment that reminds us not just of the lingering force of past interactions with a given person, but of the often human ties that unify those who should by rights be enemies. Brienne and the Hound literally almost battle to the death, and in many ways they embody the traits of the other person deplores. But that death battle was something incredibly intimate and cathartic for both of them. It showed to each of them the depths they were willing to go to to protect someone else, even though it set them against each other. Um, They both really care about Arya. They care about her. And that shared goal unites them in a way that um, little else could. Speaking of Brienne, Brienne and Jamie, one of the most surprising and beautiful unions in this entire story. Yes. And it was special, truly special to see them back together again, as fleeting as it was. It is possible in life to share a moment with another person that is so real. It is a world unto itself. And anybody who wasn't there cannot understand it to the point where explaining it to them is pointless. And Brienne is the first person Jamie opened up to in what is certainly no question among the greatest scenes in the show's history. Back in season three, Jamie, weakened from his maiming by the Boltons, slips into Brienne's bath. And he tells her about the Mad King, how Jamie was ordered by his king to kill Tywin, to kill his own father. How Ares was going to destroy the city and how the moment of heroism came to define him in the eyes of the bulk of the realm as a villain. Stabbing the Mad King in the back to protect everyone cost Jamie in many ways his life. Yeah, Brienne says to him in that moment, if this is true, why didn't you tell anyone? And it's so meaningful that at his lowest point, 
Jamie never had told anyone that secret, but he told Brianne, really the first person who ever saw him truly and made him want to be better. And so it's right that when Cersei spurns the truce after John refuses to honor the one condition that Cersei sets, it is Brienne who tries to speak to the Jamie Lannister that really only she knows. She says, Sir Jamie. Now, yeah. using Sir, honoring the fact that he is a knight in her eyes. That is huge. He says, it's been good to see you. I imagine the next time we'll be across a battlefield. And there is a sincere sadness in his voice. He doesn't want to be on opposite sides from Brienne. She says, what just happened? We both saw that thing, referring to the white. And Jamie says, yes. And I'm not looking forward to seeing more of them. Right. But I'm loyal to the queen. And you're loyal to Sansa and her don't brother. Yeah. <laughs> great, like, great little injection of comedy right there. And Brienne shocks us and Jamie alike yeah. by grabbing him, turning him and saying, oh, fuck loyalty. Jamie's like shocked. He's shocked. Fuck loyalty? Yeah. He says to her. To hear this from Brienne. Of all people. Of all people. Someone he admires probably more than any other person in the realm. The knight he always wanted to be. Yeah. She says this goes beyond houses and honor and oaths. Basically the exact sentiment that Jamie yes. will then echo to Cersei later. Talk to the queen. Now, Brienne is the only person alive who could speak those words, fuck loyalty, to Jamie in a way that completely and totally reaches him. Right. You know, the heart of their relationship, of their bond, is the idea of the power of the oath. Remember what the sword is named. Yeah. Oathkeeper. The nature of knighthood. The power that comes from being a protector. From anyone else, those words, fuck loyalty, would be an insult. They would be perceived by Jamie as an aspersion on his honor. Right. But from Brienne, they're a form of permission. Right. It's okay. They're unlocking peace of mind and a level of clarity that only she can give him. Where's Jamie heading? Is he riding to find Brienne? As you know, yeah. I've been shipping them for some time. Yeah. I'm shipping them so hard right now. <laughs> Incredible. I really, I really, really hope that yeah. he's riding to her. It's going to be tough for Tormund if he's alive and finds them together. <laughs> but <laughs> Theon and Yara and mm. Euron. Yeah. We, Our favorite part of the episode. We love these guys. Tyrion's big pitch to the group hits a snag when Euron interrupts by... Tempting essentially to shame and ma manipulate Theon in front of the assembled crowd. Theon, I have your sister. If you don't submit to me now, I'll kill her. Theon doesn't want Yara to die. You know, when he jumped off the ship to save himself, leaving Yara to face certain death, torture at Euron's hands. It wasn't because he didn't care. It was because he was afraid. He's seen things, had things done to him that no one can understand. Uh, and he was afraid it was going to happen again. We may not care about his redemption arc. And we don't. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We don't at all. Just to be very clear, guys. We don't care. We don't care. Do not care. <laughs> getting multiple Theon scenes in this finale, but barely getting any Varys or Davos is a crime. But we do understand that when he says to Jon, she's the only one who tried to save me. She needs me now. And then says to the Iron Islanders packing up to leave Dragonstone, all of us chose to follow Yara. We left the Iron Islands for Yara. She would never leave one of us behind. We're not leaving her behind. He's motivated not by... 
altruistic desire to help, which he probably does not have in his body, but out of a desperate desire to atone for the countless things that he has done. Um, here's the one thing that he can take back. He's going to try the idea that Theon getting need in his lack of balls, <laughs> the source of his greatest shame and pain would be the thing that awakens him and gives him the strength to fight back is stupid and lame, but I hated that. Yeah. It's like, that would hurt anyway. It's just like, it would hurt <sighs> anyway. And that's, it's a wound, whatever. But Theon paying <laughs> the iron price because he's desperate to reunite with a family member who still gave a shit about him after his father gave up on him, and it's probably cool to see for the handful of people out there who still care about Theon. Shouts to whoever you are. Yara, remember, <laughs> I tried to rescue Theon once before by attempting to get him to abandon his doomed mission to Winterfell. Don't die so far from the sea. Remember what you are, she's telling him, essentially. And it remains one of the more potent moments in the entire Greyjoy plot, and now it's Theon's turn to try to save Yara from that fate. What was the point of the John theon scene? I ask myself this. <laughs> Every moment of every day. Well, obviously, in large part, that's there to lay further groundwork for the John Rhaegar reveal. You don't need to choose. You're a Greyjoy and you're a Stark, John says. And that applies to the future headspace John's going to have to occupy when he learns the truth of his parentage as much or as more than it applies to the choice Theon failed to properly make in his past. But it's also a reminder of one of the most powerful unions in this story and an idea we turn to frequently on Binge Mode, the family that you choose. If we had another hour, we would devote that time to the purest union in the episode. It's beautiful. Kyburn and the White Hands. Kyburn! 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 <laughs> Sprouting that wood. Your grace. Loves a zombie. Your grace, may I keep this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing Kyburn like in the privy with this jerking zombie hand trying to fit it around his dick. Your grace, it's, it's very useful. Oh my God. It's very useful, you see. <laughs> Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. For less than $10 a meal, they deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients mm. right to your door. I know a lot of people who use Blue Apron and are extremely grateful for that convenience. I personally am a huge fan of delivery. I know you in are. many forms, as you all know. Yeah. Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week. Just like the Miranese knot. <laughs> choose a delivery option that fits your needs. Just and like God. <laughs> Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient arrives ready to cook just like Pod, <laughs> or they'll make it right. Featured upcoming meals that will be available in August include basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella, sautéed shrimp and green beans with mm. globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta, whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprice salad. Mm. Miso butter, salmon, and lo mein noodles with cucumber and charm tomatoes. My goodness, charm tomatoes. Mm. And meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese and charm tomatoes. My goodness. You're not finding that in Three Fingered Hobbs Kitchen, guys. <laughs> Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com. Slash Game of Thrones. 
you will love mm. how good it feels and tastes <laughs> <laughs> to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Game of Thrones. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now, back to binge mode. Well, Maester. Yes. I can see things that happened in the past. And I can see things happening now all over the world. But finally, getting yes. the Liana Rhaegar wedding reveal, along with confirmation of Jon's true name and standing as heir to the Iron Throne, it's bigger than really anything else in it the Thronesverse. It's huge. Including the wall falling, guys. So, I still want you to assemble the Conclave. One more time. Head to the Citadel. Yes. Teach us everything we need to know about the rules of secession in Westeros. Let's go. And John's claim to the Iron Throne. Westeros, generally speaking, follows a male preference primogenitor rule of inheritance. A king passes his lands and titles to his firstborn son, who passes them down to his firstborn son, and so on and so forth. So if a king, let's say the Mad King, names his son, Rhaegar Targaryen, as his heir, it is now, the line of succession is now Rhaegar. So his firstborn son becomes the heir. So should Rhaegar die, his son Aegon, not John, the first Aegon, would become the crown prince. What happens if you kind of go through all the sons and now you have a daughter, as we have now, between an aunt and a nephew? Well, this was settled in the minds of many during a great council, which is a gathering of lords of Westeros, great and small, to decide matters of succession. Um, there's been a few of these, but the, really the important one is the Great Council of 101 AC. That was late in the reign of the old King Jaehaerys, he had a great reign, he unified the law codes, made, built the sewers, did all kinds of stuff. Very, very successful, almost too successful because he had too many kids and there were too many heirs to the throne. We could talk about what happened, but long story short, the person that was picked, who eventually became King Viserys, Prince Viserys, who eventually became King Viserys, was picked because you could trace his lineage through the male line. The other person, Leonor Valerion, you could trace his lineage to King Jaehaerys through King Jaehaerys' daughter. So what a lot of people came to decide or came to feel about this great council was that it had set the precedent that women could not inherit the throne and women could not pass the throne through them to their sons. This is important because of John and Danny. Obviously, now, doesn't exactly settle the matters, as we said at the top. You know, John doesn't have the same kind of support that Danny does. The Danny's military support is not going to switch sides simply because John has a better claim. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So what does it mean? I don't know. Maybe we see a great council. We'll see an argument. Certainly, there's going to be people around John and Danny who are going to argue this precedent. They're going to argue um, another thing that happened late in Robert's Rebellion when Rhaegar died Instead of allowing the line of succession to pass to Aegon, the known Aegon, not John, <laughs> it's very confusing. Um, Ares, the Mad King, took the line back and he gave it to Viserys, his second son, who we know as, as Danny's brother. They fled to Essos later. Kings have wide latitude to do stuff like this. So in theory, you could see someone arguing that the line then went to Viserys and his offspring, and then when he died years later, uh, who knows? John, of course, also has a good claim, but you, this is going to be a point of contention. The point of this all is it's not exactly clear-cut, and you could see how it could be argued several ways. 
Just get hitched and rule together, guys. Why not? I mean, that's I think that's what should happen. They're already fucking. They are already fucking. <laughs> Mel. Yeah. I left this shit city because I didn't want to die in it. Fucking Los Angeles, guys. It's the worst. Am I going to die in this shit city? You might. But before you do. Yeah. Let's head to the Sept. Let's go. To bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations or questions, really, from this episode. Lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? Number one, what's up with this tiny-ass dragon pit, guys? Great question. Where's that wide entrance? Missy's like, why did they build it? And Jorah's, <laughs> Jorah, always the font of wisdom. Dragons don't understand the difference between what is theirs and what isn't. Land, livestock, children. Letting them roam free around the city was a problem. Tyrion says, I imagine it was a joke in the end, an entire arena for a few sickly creatures smaller than dogs. But in the beginning, when it was home to Balerion the Dread, it must have been the most dangerous place in the world. It's not big enough to hold Balerion the Dread, guys. When Drogon flies onto it, you're like, uh, first, there were like five or six in there at the end of the Dance of Dragons when, when the common people stormed the dragon pit to kill the dragons. I don't see how there would be five Drogon-sized dragons there. Just could not be. I don't see how there could be two Drogon-sized dragons in there. Certainly with room to do stuff. How did you feel about John just picking up a jawbone? No, come on. <laughs> first of all, it's been established that, as, as we discussed while watching the episode during for the taping and Talk of the Thrones. All the dragon skulls get taken into the Red Keep, like as a museum type of thing. Two, what, there's just a fucking dragon bone just on the ground and nobody like picked it up in all these years? Come on. No spare bones anywhere that, no. Ky- that Kyburn hasn't collected. No! Kyburn! Kyburn! <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Number two, speaking of dragons. Yeah. Since we did not see Drogon or Rhaegal flying into King's Landing, we just see from the perspective of the people in the dragon pit that they are there. Yeah. We did not get a shot that would match a shot that we have seen in Bran's vision. It's a great point. Of a winged shadow over the King's Landing red roof. Yes. So, given our prior discussion, about how basically the state of construction and development in King's Landing at the time yes. of Aegon's conquest, plus the other adjacencies to those shots in Bran's visions, basically make us fairly confident that at the time that we saw those visions, both in season four and season six, yeah. that that was a shot of the future. Right. It would seem to still be a shot of the future. Right. So, is it Drogon? Is it Rhaegal? Hmm. Or could it be Viserion wow. and the Night King? It is time to start seriously considering that possibility. Now, I should say, there's also, there are shots in these brand visions of like a dark yes. dragon in the sky. And that dragon, if you look back, has intact wings. And we know now after seeing Viserion at the wall that he has holes in his Ragged wings, wings, which makes t- me like extremely sad. Say, yeah. But- the shadow, specifically the shadow, the dragon-shaped shadow flying over King's Landing. Who's to say which yeah. dragon that is? Who's to say? All this time we've thought, Danny, for sure, causing the throne room destruction that we've seen in these visions as well. Maybe not. Maybe, Maybe not. so. Who, Who knows? knows? It's just, it's interesting that there's suddenly a new possibility to consider. And either way, we know for sure, dragons coming back to King's Landing. And soon. Yet another great observation from you, Mel. Wow. Oh. Buddy, thanks. Number three, the fuck were Tormund and Beric doing on the wall, guys? So, listen, so dumb. We've spent the whole season, John screaming that he's 
fucking looked into the Night King's goddamn <laughs> fucking blue ass eyes. <laughs> Gotta get that dragon glass. Gotta mine it. We're gonna make weapons. And then Beric and Tormund are standing up on the wall with their fucking cocks in their hand. <laughs> Doing what exactly? Shocked that the army of the dead is fucking marching on the wall? You knew that was going to happen. Then the fucking Night King comes over on the back of Viserion and blasts the wall, hovers there for a second. Why aren't you guys shooting arrows at him? Why aren't you guys throwing spears at him? Where the you, There's a scorpion on the wall that we saw on, on, on Watchers on the Wall. Right. What are you guys doing? <laughs> They're chilling. They're chatting. <sighs> Come on. Have the chat. Can somebody please defend the fucking realm for God's sakes? <laughs> it's oh, not buddy. just blowing your horn and jacking off. <laughs> With your hands. With your hands. <laughs> With your hands. Really miss Egret. Really she miss her. She great. Number four. A few theories that are worth very mm. quickly discussing after this episode. First. Sure. Gotta address yeah. what the internet is all a buzz about. Sure. So many things. This overhead shot of the Army of the Dead making its way through the wall that some people on the interwebs think looks like the Stark sigil, like the wolf. And what might this mean about who the Night King is? Here's my thing. Sure. As you know, I need corrective lenses. I just haven't gone to the eye doctor in like five years. Which is where I'm taking you for I'm your birthday. I'm sure that I cannot see properly this, what I'm terrifies to see me here. night and day when I think about you driving. I, you're in my car a lot, so you should be very afraid. The fact that I waved at you <laughs> in the commissary and you just looked through me was terrifying. Listen, I, I, I see the Night King, but... <laughs> <that's> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking into your eyes, Val. I see nothing. I thought... I thought this looked seriously like, again, at the time of the episode, I thought sure. nothing of this. But while looking at these pictures, these screenshots, I'm like, that looks like the more like the Tully Trout know, than the, the Stark Direwolf to me. I do not see it. Edward Tully back! Where the fuck is it? Where is that guy? Oh, my God. Next theory. Yeah. Dario, we know that Euron is heading to Essos. We know that the Golden Company, or should I say the Golden Compass, is going to <laughs> be... Bullman. Where are you? Chris Ryan. Shouts. Chris Ryan yeah. is going to be joining this tale. Could Dario get back in the mix somehow? Some people think that maybe he will be the source of one of Danny's betrayals, mm. that he's so heartsick over being yeah. left behind that he will actually take up arms against her. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. Some people think, could he be a mole? Could he infiltrate the mercenary group and attempt to feed her information? The question then becomes, how would he know to do that? Right. I and just... would he ever abandon his post in Marine when she explicitly was like, Hold this down. Right. Bro. Listen, Dario loved riding the dragon. <laughs> if you ever want to ride the dragon again, you kind of got to do what the dragon says. Dragon gives you a job. I don't think anyone else is going to be riding that dragon but John. John is. We've been waiting for John to ride Rhaegal and we might have to wait a little while longer, but he <laughs> rode that dragon, folks. He did. He rode it, guys. Oh, he rode it. It rode him at first. She rode ah, it. That was more of a, sure. That was more of a rest. That was a repose. That was weird. It was strange. Has anyone in, ever in any kind of active sexual congress ever laid on another person like that on purpose? No. The rest of it was great. Anyway, continue, Mel. Finally, Euron. Yes. Euron. It wouldn't be a episode of Binge Mode without us mentioning a horn. Gotta ask. Eddie Greenwald, where are you? Game of horns. Could he possibly discover Dragonbinder during this trip? to Essos, or could it still come into the story in some way? You're on, the only person who sprouted more wood than Kyburn, 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 when he looked at the white, was Euron when he looked at yeah, that dragon. I know. So, you gotta wonder, Yeah, is it too late? 
for the horn. I don't know. I don't know. Dag. I don't know, Dag. Dag. <laughs> Number five, Brandon Sam. So many things going on here. Brandon says, I remember everything. Mm-hmm. Except for the one crucial piece of information <laughs> that you have. So and, weird. You know, like, are we sure Brand can see the future? Not just the past and present. I can see things that happened in the past. See things that are happening now all over the world. Why did you come to Winterfell? What? That <laughs> line seriously like, reads like a parody. Wait, what? Yeah, that's an actual line from the show. And this, we will address this <laughs> later. You know, like, does he really not know? And then Sam, listen, they've, the writers have done Sam fucking dirty this season. Yeah. Parroting his father's words was concerning and weird. Quitting the Citadel was eh. hand-waving Gilly, mansplaining to her face and just being like, what? Shut up. I've like, you don't understand. My boss is on my ass. So many emails. So many emails about this. (laughs) What? I don't want to hear about shits. And then to be with Bran and be like, oh, wait a second. You know what? I, (laughs) not not my wife, my common-law wife, my girlfriend, I, I was researching a text (laughs) And I came across this bit of information about Septon Maynard. No, you didn't. Gilly did that. And not only that, Bran knows that, we think. If he, <laughs> if he decides to look, he'll be like, actually, it was Gilly who did that. <laughs> Come on, Sam. Tough. Bran struggling to grasp all the fragments still. Yes. We're struggling mm. to grasp number six, which uh-huh. is where was Varys all season long? What <laughs> happened here? If I think seriously, like it's hard to totally put yourself yeah. back in the headspace from before the season aired, but I think we would have said with supreme confidence yes. that Var- Varys was going to have a really meaningful role this season. Yeah. And he did basically. Here's nothing. what he did he walks at a quick step <laughs> into the throne room when John first arrives to tell Danny that her fleets have been destroyed. Right. He talks with Tyrion after the. Loot train <laughs> attack <laughs> to be like, hey, get her, you gotta, get you, her gotta chill, you gotta chill her the fuck out, dude. And he lets Mel dunk on him on the cliffs when she's like, you're gonna die here. Dunks on him so fucking hard, which by the way is not a great prediction. Like, as we mentioned in the past, you're in a place, you're not leaving that place, you probably die there. Like, let's just, okay. And then he has the one line in this episode. Truly tragic. Please bring back Varys in a meaningful way in season eight. And hey, while we're at it, bring back Mel too. Missed her. Missed her. Oh, I mean, just like her. like recall Varys's the power speech. Oh my god! And an iconic moment in the I, show's history. An iconic moment in the show's history that eloquently explained what the show was about. And now he's just gone. One of the real problems with the season, looking back on it, we we spent a lot of time talking about how certain characters seem to be betraying their own nature in a way that was yeah. troubling. But certain characters were essentially absent. The, not having, obviously, Littlefinger was in the story more than Varys, but not having Littlefinger and Varys occupying their traditional yeah. roles as the spiders, as yeah. the, the people sort of whispering or yes. having others whisper to them, you felt that absence keenly every week this season. Absolutely. Number seven, what's up with Tyrion? Just creeping under the stairs, listening to the hump sounds, the squeaking mattress, the sound of the wooden legs of the bed scratching across the floor, <laughs> the headboard banging against the wall. Why is he doing this? <laughs> Why? To what end? Mal. It's a great question. Yeah. Oh, oh, he. Oh, 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 oh. It's like, that's what's happening in the background. He's just like. It's concerning. He, you know, we both think that he is in love with Danny. 
I don't think either of us thinks that it would be true to form for Tyrion to let his feelings for her. Not in that way. Bring down the central, most crucial relationship for the survival, not only of their <laughs> political ambitions, but of right. like mankind. It's just like, uh, and and the other the other explanation is, which is I think also fair and certainly plausible, is that he's just concerned about losing some kind of control over Danny's right. as an advisor and wondering, you know, oh, is the injection of love mm. mm-hmm. very literal injection of love. I just like throwing alley-oop passes to Mallory. I'm going to miss that. Um, is that going to somehow throw off the things that he's trying to do? Like, right. is that what he's concerned about? Maybe. Maybe that's the case. Why show it like that? Is that really, like, why isn't he just in his office kind of like, man, this is, I wonder what I'm going to do about this. Like, staring pensively out over the water. Why is he, like, listening to them bang? Right. Well, and, but the other thing is, is, he has not had effective control over Danny to this no. point. And he's extremely fond of John. And if we yeah. talked about this on the watch with Chris earlier That's this week, thing. but if if the story loses sight of what the relationship and the yeah. bond between Tyrion and John represents in a story about yeah. cripples, bastards, and broken things, that will be crushing. It really will be. Yeah. I mean, when Tyrion says to John, all dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes, that is as meaningful a statement between two characters in this story as there is. Mal? Yeah. You need to know the truth. Oh, no. The truth about what? About yourself. No one knows. No one but me. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> Each episode, we're going to honor the person or persons mm-hmm. who play the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winners of our champion's purse are... The Dragons and the Wolves! Love it. Rhaegar, Lyanna, yes. John, Danny. Oh, they're winners for sure. Oh, yeah. The unions that define this story. Yeah. John himself, the dragon and a wolf. Yes. Uh, and it's really a story about the power of love to overcome a lot of things. Wisdom, responsibility, your duty to your family, the duty to the realm. You just want to be with a person. And that's what happened with Rhaegar and Lyanna. They created this person, Jon Snow, who now is having those feelings for his aunt. Yes, sure. <laughs> Let's put that aside for a second because in this world, it's fine. And also in that family, it's fine. It's wonderful. It's like a, it's, um, you know, so much of the story is like shared histories and these kind of circles and loops that seem to come back in interesting ways. And here it is again, The Dragon and the Wolf. Our very first pointy end theme, episode one, season wonderful. one. Weight of history. Champion's purse tally for you guys. 67 episodes in. We're not going to do all 67, but just the top billing here at the end. And I just want to be very clear about one thing. Yes. Zach Mack counted these. So if they're wrong, you blame him. You don't, don't at me. At, at Zach Mack. Here's the other thing. (laughs) We get added enough. (laughs) We get added. Listen, we get added. We get added dozens of times an hour. Usually about Zach's math errors. Yeah. So send those to him. That's right. Guys, coming in. First place. Yes. The tourney of our hearts. That's right. Jon Snow with 10. 10 big 10 wins. 10 wins. Woo. Danny, nine. You know why so many for those two? Is it because it is their story? I think actually? that's why. Could that be it? That's why. <laughs> Arya and Tyrion each have four. I'm happy about that. Me too. I like that. The Queen 
Bay. Listen. Marjorie Tyrell. She came in, in in like limited innings and really did a lot of work. She had three wins. Tywin yes. also had three. Hi Sparrow. Yeah, he did. He oh, came, man. That tells you a lot about season five. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, before we say thank you and farewell, I'm going to take a couple minutes here. Read you a little Raven scroll. It's for Benioff. It's for Weiss. And it's for all of you. You know, fantasy is, as a genre, it's often derided as stories for children. Simplistic, unserious tales about wizards and dragons and fairies, magical swords, chosen princes who defeat evil. Certainly, that is the main criticism hurled at two stories that Mal and I love, the Harry Potter series, and less pointedly in the beginning, but certainly more so now, the Song of Ice and Fire series in Game of Thrones. I think one of the things that Mal and I are concerned about is kind of ham-handed way the series has dealt with the fantasy elements, certainly as the show has moved beyond the books. In a way that almost seems like they're embarrassed of those elements. You know? And sure, fantasy stories are about those things, are about princes and magical swords and all that stuff. And those things are certainly childish in a certain way, but that's where their power comes from, from places that are really so fragile that they have to be hidden away from life's hard edges. And that's what growing up is really, a relentless shedding of childhood things that are too impractical to carry forward into adulthood, too fragile to expose to the light, too achingly embarrassing to really say out loud. Fantasy's role is to create a world where the howling absences and random tragedies of life have hidden meanings. It's to fulfill that childish desire, hopefully still alive in all of us, all of you, to be special. A crippled boy becomes a powerful sorcerer. A bastard becomes a king. Broken things heal with newfound strength, ways that we never expect. We all inhabit these interior worlds of unspoken dreams and fears. A great fantasy story lets us share those worlds in a way that feels thrilling but safe, sad but also hopeful. In real life, words fail us all the time, every day. There's things you want to say to people that you just never say for your whole life. In fantasy, lifelong bonds are forged wordlessly with dragons and owls and wolves. And these tales are a way to meet profound grief wrapped in the armor of imagination. Think of Harry Potter's story without magic. A child, a baby really, loses his parents to a car accident. Scarred physically and psychologically, he goes to live with distant relatives. Resentful of the burden his care puts on them, they bully and ignore him. He sleeps in a storage space filled with spiders under the stairs. Every day, he watches the mail carrier bring in the mail. And he imagines that one of those letters will be for him, calling him away to someplace better, and none of them ever do. Gradually, a darkness, which has always been there inside of him, which he can't express, doesn't understand, grows. And one day, he just decides to walk into the woods, intent on ending his own life, pulls his jacket tight about him, and he thinks about his parents, wonders what they would say if they were there with him now. Or think about Game of Thrones without the magic. A boy grows up never knowing his mother. His father's new wife hates him. Desperate for a place to call home and make his father proud, he joins the military. When he's gone, his father and half-brother are murdered. An orphan, a refugee from war on the streets in a foreign land, is sold to a stranger like a piece of furniture by her own brother. But of course, in these stories, Harry's parents didn't die in some meaningless accident that means absolutely nothing to his life. They died to save him from ultimate evil. The scar he carries marks him as special, magical. And there's an entire community of magical people watching over him all the time, waiting just the right moment to pluck him out of this everyday world into their own. He finds friendship and love there, allowing him to meet danger and loss with kindness that he didn't know he possessed. And in his darkest moment, when he believes that the only way to save the world is to kill himself, essentially, 
he's able to call his parents to him, to talk to them. Their love and pride in him sustains him on a long, dark walk. Jon Snow isn't a bastard. He's the only one who can stop the White Walkers. His father was a king, his mother a noble lady. Danny is the rightful queen whose grief at losing her husband and unborn child is what births magic back into the world. These are the kind of stories we tell ourselves in secret when night goes on forever, when everyone around you has turned into a machine, seemingly. And so we would like to urge the showrunners, Mal and I, to try and stop treating the magical parts of this show as the Dursleys treated Harry, something to stuff under the stairs and not think about or really flesh out. Engage with those things. Explain them. How do Bran's powers work? How does Arya's faceless men training work? Are Viserion's flames fire or ice or simply pure magic? What are the Night King's motivations? What's the nature of the relationship between Jon and Ghost and Danny and her dragons? Those are the things that make fantasy stories important, and they're so important to this story. That was so beautiful. Thank you for saying that and sharing that with us. That was incredibly moving and meaningful. And I think that everybody out there who's like us and who loves stories like this will be grateful for you saying that. And I think that one of the things that people always say about fantasy is it's an escape, right? But what what is escapism really? Like, is it just about separating yourself from the unpleasant realities of your life to find something that's totally foreign and unrecognizable? No, it never works that way. It's about identifying that DNA that defines who you are in another world that has just a few colors and people and places and ideas repositioned in a way that could change everything about how other people see you and how you see yourself and what you think is possible. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. And it's why stories like this mean so much to us. And that's a really awesome thing. We're very grateful for it. Well, friends, (laughs) we've been here for some time. Our apologies. Quick programming announcement for you guys. The Ringer Podcast Network will be continuing the Binge Mode series. More seasons on more binge-worthy topics from more Ringer staffers. So keep this feed active and be on the lookout for an announcement soon. We want to extend the heartiest and most sincere thank you possible to all of you for listening to this podcast, for making Binge Mode the shared joyous thing that it was for us. I think that we probably would have done this if we were the only ones listening (laughs) to it. Yeah. (laughs) And we would have really enjoyed it still. But seeing how it resonated with people was and continues to be gratifying in a way that we, I think, will always struggle to explain. So thank you for that. Sincerely. Thank you as well to Zach... Mad Axe Mac. (laughs) You guys know him as the inventor of bells. But what you might not know is that he sat here with us on weekends into the wee hours of the morning. He gave us an immense amount of support and encouragement. And we are very grateful to him for that. It is our goal in life to get him to understand how important direwolves are, but we are forever grateful for that. 
Thanks as well to Colin Orcutt, who is our producer of video and audio at The Ringer, for everything he's done for us and the support he's shown us over the length of this really incredible journey. As well as the rest of the audio team, Joe Fuentes, Isaac Lee, Kyle Crichton, and Jim Cunningham, the video squad also. Um, Sean Yu, whose work has been invaluable, especially on Ask the Maester Lives on Tuesdays. Jason Gallagher, my main dude. Dark Matt Gothard. <laughs> Richie Bozek. Dylan Berkey, two of the quietest interns really ever. Uh, <laughs> Christian Robinson for some of the work he did early on. As well as Alex Lee for listening to us complain a lot. David Shoemaker for his artwork. Riley McAtee for fact check. Zach Cram for letting us ride him like a mule every Sunday night, <laughs> talk the thrones. Craig Gaines, just for being like a genius and running the cat copy desk. Our pets, Milton and Halo. They're great. Shouts to those guys. And of course, Sean Fennessy, Dag. Dag. <laughs> Jeff Chow, Eric Weinberger, and Bill Simmons. I would like to also thank you, Jason. Thanks, Mel. For 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 giving me a four month version for however long it's been I've lost sense of time and space <laughs> of the Jamie Brand bath moment for always seeing me and understanding me and never making me feel silly or stupid for wanting to devote so much time to this and for caring about this as much as I do. It is an incredible thing in life to find somebody who cares as much as you do about something and who shares your passions. I feel so fortunate to have that with you. When GR said to John early on in the story that the things we love destroy us every time, remember that? I have to disagree with that because working on this with you has been ultimate affirmation for me that the things we love can empower us and fulfill us and inspire us. And when Amen said to John, we are only human and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. I really felt the glory every day doing this with you. And I just wanted to end by reading you a little something from the only person I love as much as you, Jorah Mormont. <laughs> <laughs> Not really from him, but his recitation. They held each other close and turned their backs upon the end. The hills that split asunder and the black that ate the skies. The flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned would never be the final sights that fell upon their eyes. A fly upon a wall, the waves the sea wind whipped and churned, the city of a thousand years and all that men had learned. The doom consumed it all alike, and neither of them turned. Mal, so much of engaging with stories is like living inside your head. And you live there mostly alone, really. That any way to explain to people what it is exactly you're thinking in every given moment, feeling. I think the thing that's been so gratifying about this project is I always felt like we were in the same place at the same time, understanding the story in the same way 
and I just could never have done it without you. Thanks for sharing this world with me. <laughs> Thanks for sharing it with me. <laughs> Guys, we're going to sign off before we completely melt down. But thank you again, sincerely. Keep listening to podcasts. Keep reading stories that you love. Keep sharing your joys with the people who mean the most to you in the world. And until we are with you again, which we will be, remember, maybe it really is all cocks in the end. Well, we'll find out. Oh my god. 130 minutes. That's not bad. <laughs> you know what I love to do? I love to blast cigarettes on my Sonos because I don't understand what they're saying and the music sounds like the vacant landscape of my soul. Movies, sports, TV shows, gaming, play bass adds dynamic pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV. And streams your favorite music when it's off. Yet, its low-profile design practically disappears. Where'd it go beneath your TV? And now, for the first time ever, Sonos is offering listeners of Binge Mode this podcast that is the best 10% off one order of $2,500 or less. That's a lot of cash, but 10% off for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Just use the promo code BINGE10, capital B-I-N-G-E-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer.